Hello and welcome to the Movement Disorder Podcast. In this series, we'll be exploring the finer side of things with some of the great minds of movement disorders. We will get to hear interesting information and history to understand how we got to be here. We'll explore the approach to diagnosis and management, the things that your books would not tell you. And most importantly, get tips and tricks that will get you a step ahead in the game. Hi, John. It's a pleasure to have you here again um, to talk about some of your interesting cases. And you know, I learn a lot talking to you every week about these cases, and I hope uh, other people can also share my enthusiasm uh, for these cases. Well, thank you. I find that I've learned the most from the patients I see. If you listen, if you pay attention. I agree. So which uh, patient would you be telling us about today? Well, this is going to be a surprise. I'll tell you about the patient and see if you can figure it out on the way, whoever's listening. Also, can you also give me a context of when you ran into this patient? What were you doing around that time? What I was, stage of training? Sure. I was at the University of Michigan Medical Center. My first year of residency in neurology. We met with the senior residents that were leaving, and they had particularly interesting cases, and they would donate the case or pass the case and patient along to one of the new residents. And we had a chart back then they were big charts mm-hmm. and he put it in front of me and said, this is for you. Okay. This young woman has a spinocerebellar degeneration. I said, okay, which one? And he said, uh, he said something like free ataxia. And I may have actually been since he was still there, an intern, but I remember his Arch Brickle was the doctor. A very smart guy, but he was never in doubt about what the story was, and usually very appropriately so. So he said, it's Friedreich's ataxia. Being a little OCD even back then, I looked through the chart and If there were parts missing, I got them. And I started going through to look for a family history, to find out what the birth and development history was. Uh But there were some things about this that just didn't look right. I found out from the outside records, which were back then copied very poorly, and they were very hard to tell what was being said A lot of it was handwritten. A lot of it was out of order. But I think at about 18 months of age, some abdominal catastrophe had to have an operation. Almost died. She had a very difficult course. The diagnosis was intussusception. So her abdominal catastrophe was, most of her small intestine was dying. So they had, back then, an immediate laparotomy, and they found that it was not going to survive, and they cut out a large portion of her small intestine. So I was fascinated. I don't know that other people paid much attention to this, and she had been normal until then. No family history of 
in the Friedrichs ataxia. Her story then was she barely survived. She had a lot of electrolyte disturbances, got over that, was sent home, uh-huh. and had to have a special diet. So when I saw her, the story from the family was, but they noticed when she got up for her graduation diploma in high school, they noticed that she wasn't walking very well in her high heels. She had always been kind of frail. By the time I saw her, she had a severe ataxia. When I started working with her, she had a strange voice that was ataxic. She had a significant peripheral neuropathy. I was very careful about my neurological examination. I think she had reduced reflexes, but she may have had a Babinski sign. She had no perception, none, of vibration sense. You start in the toes, Mm -hmm. and you move up to the ankles. Still nothing, you know, and the knees, nothing. Iliac crest, nothing. You know, along the dorsal spine, nothing. I got to her sternum, and she said, oh yeah, I can, I can tell, yes, it's vibrating. And I say, how do you know that? She said, well, I can start to hear it a little bit. And her position sense was terrible. Mm. And that's one of the reasons she walked with a wide base case. She had no idea where her feet were. Mm. And I was very much bothered by this. So I thought it might be related to some sort of malabsorption. Right. She had steatorrhea, you know, she had fatty, um, unusual bowel movements all her life. And I just got to thinking, there's something weird about this. She had uh, ataxic eye movements. She had uh, strabismus. One eye went in one direction, the other one went in another. She had a very high-pitched, squeaky voice. Mm. She had a lot of ataxia in her periphery. Kind of in coordination. In coordination. So when she reached for a glass of water, she picked it up. She'd spill part of it. Mm. And it was very, she had to use two hands. And I'm trying to remember this. I haven't reviewed the case, but uh, I did eventually write it up. Mm. And I decided to propose that we evaluate this young woman in a new area we just had at University of Michigan, the clinical research unit. I think at that time, by the time I got her into the ICU, um, I had been finding out that there were abnormalities. Her B12 level was normal. Mm. Other things were normal, but vitamin E was very low. I I did some research and found that there was a model by uh, Dr. Pencheff who had done a study of rats deprived of vitamin E. Mm. And they had scoliosis. They had pathology in the dorsal columns, really severe, like she did, because her vibration sense was gone. They had ataxia. They had uh, scoliosis, if I didn't mention it. And I also found that she had an abnormality. She had an anemia, a macrocytic anemia. Now, this is, we're talking about 1980s, early 80s? No, still in the 70s. 70s. And vitamin E deficiency was not known? No, but there was a inherited disorder called Bassen-Kornzweig disease. B-A-S-S-E-N hyphen K-O-R-N-Z-W-E-I-G or something mm. like that. Was related to A-beta lipoproteinemia, like you were saying. 
That was negative. She didn't have that disorder. But that was known to cause ataxia. Yes. In fact, when I saw that disorder, I said, that's her. Mm. So, and then I had other people work with me on this. I, I enlisted somebody from ophthalmology, mm. a GI expert who was really well known in the field, uh, somebody that did a retinal visual evoked potentials. He was from the Mideast, and he was one of the rare few people who could do this. I got a dermatologist. We did skin biopsies, a neuropathologist. We did muscle and nerve biopsies. I mean, we did a real good evaluation of this young lady. And, you know, you're, you're referring to some rat models. That means that the human vitamin E deficiency state was not... Dis this effects were not known. No, in fact, vitamin E had a... It was thought to be a bogus. And the levels could be tested commercially? You could test Yes, I, I had to send them out to a special lab. Wow. And they, I mean, if, let's say the level had to be 20, hers was practically undetectable. So once I noticed that she had what looked like bone spicule um, retinal degeneration that was seen in some known disorders that were categorized as a spinal cerebellar degeneration, ophthalmologists were really, really interested in this case. Mm. And so there was something that they used, dark adapted visual fields. Um, so what they did is they put somebody in a very dark room and then let the vitamin A regenerate. And then you did visual fields. And when her visual fields were in dark light, they were very constricted. So the rods and the cones, the rods tend to be outside, mm. you know, and the cones are in the middle in the macula area. So uh, in order to see a dim star, for example, if you look right at it, you don't see it at night. If you look off to the side where your rods are more sensitive to dim light, you can see it. Mm. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. So we were intrigued by all this that she had. Never seen a case like this. At that time, we were thinking mainly of vitamin A. So we treated her with high doses of vitamin A. Mm. And her visual fields I had been tested in the ophthalmology department for years. Amazingly normalized quite a bit. Not back to normal, but 50% back to normal. Her ataxia got better. She was, and I don't think she was able to walk in high heels. Her position sense got a little bit better. Her sensation got better. And so you, did you replace the vitamin E? We eventually did. We put all this together. We showed the vitamin A and E and all the other levels. We sent it into the journal Neurology. And then Bud Rowland from Columbia was the editor of Neurology. And it was turned down. Back then, I presented this also at the you know, American Neurological Association. The ANA. The ANA. It was a platform presentation, and they had some so-called expert come in and do his critique of what my work was. Uh -huh. And after I presented it, it was probably one of the first presentations I ever made. We had a lot of data, and uh, I sat down, and the guy ripped all my assumptions to shreds. He said, this is inherited disorder. It's got to be 
one of the spinocerebellar degenerations. And I said, well, which one? Which one is it most like? And he couldn't come up with an answer. And I said, you know, we did this electroretinogram on family members too. We couldn't find anybody else in the family that had her abnormal electroretinogram. Why was it so hard to believe that vitamin deficiencies can cause this? I don't know. It's because people didn't recognize these things. You know, it was just, I think it was only recent knowledge that the A-beta lipoproteinemia, Bassin-Kornzweig syndrome could be treated. And babies were being treated from the get-go, but it was if they were diagnosed correctly. She did better and better, and uh, when... So you got published in Neurology Journal? No, they turned it down. So, but we had the abstract in the proceedings of the American Neurological Association. At least I had my citation for the first adult case of vitamin A deficiency. Did you ever publish it in any other journal? We did eventually publish it years later. When I was in Texas, I went there in 1979, my first job. I invited her to come down. I think they sometimes would winter in Texas. So I did a grand rounds on her. And on that patient? On the patient. So I presented her as the case, and uh, it was really gratifying to see that she had improved and was thriving, still had problems with dark vision, and still had some ataxia, but much better than she was. So in other words, the lessons here are, number one, if you have a suspicion or if you're not sure because the patient doesn't fit the typical picture, go back and go to square one. Think again. And my advisor told me he was going to forbid me from doing this. I'm glad I did. I looked him in the eye and I said, you don't have all of my time. I can do this on my own time. I think this is important. He said, no, it's just a vitamin B12 deficiency. I said, well, we'll check for vitamin B12, but it's not. You know, and that's one of the things I'm most proud of. I stuck to my guns at that point. I was just beginning. And the opposition that you get from coming up with a new idea or a new approach, that's not malicious. It's just the way people are. If you're coming up with a new idea, they say, well, who are you to say that you're discovering or finding something? Do you think you're being a junior a first-year neurology resident played a part in it, and all these guys were way senior, somebody like Bud Rowland. Of course, of course. But um, I saw Bud Rowland at a later American Academy of Neurology meeting, and I challenged him. He told me, we just didn't believe it. There's nothing, you can't take these things personally. It's just that there will be opposition to any change. People are averse to change, and... You know, there's a lot of wrong ideas that get promulgated. The thing that I like the best about this whole story is that I found something wrong with somebody that nobody thought of before, and we improved her life. That's the main thing. The second one was I learned a lesson about sticking to my guns. And, and Emery Kochman, who was a mentor of mine, we talked about him today, a Turkish gentleman a fine doctor, went to Mayo Clinic. An ex-wrestler? An ex-Turkish wrestler who <laughs> was bombastic. I remember presenting this to a small group. It wasn't even, it was just a research meeting. And he said, 
I think John is on to something. He was the first guy that really thought, other than the people I was working with, helping me with the paper. Well, I found out that it was published in neurology later. The initial abstract presentation was in 1978. This actually got published in 1984 in Neurology, Volume 34, Number 8, in August of 1984, pages 1046 to 1052. Back then, they wrote you a letter, please send me a reprint, before they had Xerox machines. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> it's remarkable how fascinating the world of movement disorders is. And just to look at one facet of it can mesmerize you. I hope you're as thrilled as I am about today's episode. Your feedbacks and suggestions are highly appreciated. So write to us at unmc.mdpodcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at danishbahati underscore md that is at d-a-n-i-s-h-b-h-a-t-t-i underscore md. Hope to see you next time. Ciao, ciao.